It now gives me great pleasure to introduce Jane Clark. Jane is a senior research fellow of the Muhaddin Ibn Arabi Society and has worked on the Society's archiving project as well as looking after the library. She has been studying Ibn Arabi for more than 40 years and is engaged in teaching courses and lecturing on his thought, both in the UK, including Oxford University and the Temenos Academy, and abroad, including Egypt, Australia and the USA. She's also involved in research and translation of the Akbarian heritage. She has a particular interest in the correlation of Ibn Arabi's thought with contemporary issues, and she organises the MIAS Young Writers Award. Jane, please unmute and begin when you're ready. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Lucy. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome. Um, thank you very much, Ibn Arabi Society, for inviting me. I must say that I feel that this morning's talk is a very hard act to follow. Um, so I hope that uh, <laughs> um, you will you will forgive a, maybe a less high powered presentation. So this talk is in a way my direct response to the overall title of this symposium, Ibn Arabi Receptivity and the Idea of the Feminine. So it's always been the case in all cultures and philosophical and religious traditions that receptive, passive modes of operation have been associated with the feminine and active modes with the masculine. But it is a very important part of Ibn Arabi's exposition that this does not mean that these modes should be correlated in the case of human beings with physical gender, such that we ascribe receptive qualities to women and the masculine qualities to men, and thus either implicitly or explicitly limit the sphere of activity available to either of the sexes. Ibn Arabi understands masculine and femininity to be cosmic principles, or at the level of the individual, interior states which reflect the degree of a person's realisation. In other words, he understands the imagery of male and female as it is used in religious texts such as the Quran or the Bible to be metaphor, which we should not take literally. This is now widely understood, I think, in contemporary Western society, but literal interpretations are still very prevalent in many parts of the world and often used to justify the practice of treating men and women differently, even in the sphere of spirituality. Thus, Ibn Arabi's very clear exposition on the matter remains rather surprisingly, perhaps for a medieval writer, relevant to present-day issues. Behind Ibn Arabi's position is his understanding of the nature of the human being and our function in the cosmos. The human being, as it is stated in the sacred books of all the Abrahamic traditions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, is made in the image of God. And Ibn Arabi makes it a central feature of his writing that this means that the full realisation or perfection of human potential consists in the person becoming the place of manifestation of all the divine qualities. And this necessarily includes both the active and passive attributes. And for those, in case there are anybody here who does not familiar with the Arabic terminology, it's probably important to mention here that the word for the realized human being within the mystical tradition, al-Insan al-Kamil, which in the past was often translated as the perfect man, is in fact gender neutral. Insan is a dual form 
which implies the state which is both masculine and feminine. And this is very hard to convey in other languages. There is no word in English, for example, for a dual-gendered person, although these days people are trying to establish they as a gender-neutral pronoun. So this has created problems in translation, for example, in regard to the creation narrative within the Abrahamic traditions, where the first human being is named as Adam and traditionally referred to by the masculine pronoun. But the word used in the Quran is insan, not rajal, man. And therefore, some modern translators have started to refer to this primordial human as Adam-Eve, which, although clumsy, has the virtue of accuracy. It is not until the creation of Eve in the narrative that the duality of gender comes into the picture. And at this point, it is not only Eve who comes into being, but also Adam as specifically a man rather than the archetype of humanity. Ibn Arabi was not the first or only person within the Sufi tradition to have this understanding of maleness and female. It seems that it was present from the very beginning and it continued throughout its development into the more formal expressions into the, in the classical period. For instance, there are examples of what we might call gender transcending in the early tabakats, the accounts of the deeds and doings of the saints, which began to appear within Sufism from the 10th century onwards. Abdul Rahman al-Sulam's Dhikra al-Niswar, for instance, Describe in, in it in the book he describes he describes the most famous of all female Islamic saints Rabia al Adawiyah who lived in the late eighth century and she is portrayed as a fiercely independent and ascetic woman who acted as a mentor to men as well as to her female companions in what seemed to have been a same sex religious community on the outskirts of Basra. Solomon quotes one of the most eminent of these men, Sufyan al-Fawri, an important transmitter of hadith and a Quran commentator, as saying of her, quote, take me to the teacher, for when I, I, when I am apart from her, I find no solace, unquote. And the tradition has actually got it a bit wrong here, as more recent research has shown that the man in question was almost certainly not al-Fawri, but the equally important early thinker Hassan al-Basri. But the point of the story from our point of view is that he uses the masculine form or starve for the word teacher rather than the feminine or starver. And this is deliberate and significant. Farid Adin Attaf, writing a little later in the 12th century, specifically comments upon it. Such was her degree of attainment, he explains, that Rabia was worthy of being included in the ranks of men. He goes on, quote, the prophet himself said, God does not regard your outer forms. The root of the matter is not form, but intention. When a woman becomes a man in the path of God, she is a man, and one cannot any more call her a woman. Unquote. Now, this at first sight to modern eyes may seem, despite its underlying good intention, to express a rather sexist point of view, implying that to be a woman is such an inferior rank that any woman who achieves anything must be elevated out of it. And there is no doubt that this is in some ways true. But it is also the case 
as will she see in the course of this talk, that this word man, rougeau, or the concept of manliness, rougeulia, has a technical meaning within the Sufi tradition, which means that there is also something quite specific being said in these passages. And this attribution of teacher in the masculine is also extended to at least one other woman within Suleiman's text, Fatima al-Nishapuri, who lived in the 9th century, a little later than Rabia, who is reported as having taught two seminal figures of early Islam, Abu Yazid al-Bastami and Dhul-Nun al-Misri. The latter, when asked, who is the most excellent person you have ever met, is reported as replying, quote, I have never seen any more, anyone more excellent than a woman I saw in Mecca, who is called Fatima of Nishapur. She used to discourse wonderfully on the matters pertaining to the meaning of the Quran. She is a saint, Wali, from among the friends of God, the glorious and the mighty. She is also my teacher, Ustavi, again using the masculine form. And this juxtaposition of Fatima and Abu Yazid is a nice one to mention at the beginning of the talk, uh, as Abu Yazid is famous within the Sufi tradition for a conversation he reportedly had with God, in which he asked, how can I draw close to you? And God replied, with that which does not belong to me, civility and dependence, unquote. Civility and dependence being attributes of receptivity, this provides us with a very nice example of female attributes manifesting through a physical male. This is an important gender transcendence as male attributes manifesting within a female seeker. Indeed, according to Ibn Arabi, as we shall see, it is even more important, or maybe, maybe even the most important thing of all on the spiritual path. Now I'm going to put up my PowerPoint now because I think we need to see some of these quotations. This picture is of Rabia. Um, it doesn't tell us very much about her spirituality as she's grinding corn. But I suppose it does tell us something about her fame in that there is a named portrait of her, which is very rare for, for, for women. But anyway, the male, the metaphor of male and female within Ibn Arabi's thought is actually a very important one. For example, in the glorious chapter 11 of his opus magnus al-Futahat Makir, the Meccan revelations, entitled On the Knowledge of the High Fathers and the Low Mothers, he graphically describes the whole of creation as coming into being through the union of male and female aspects of the one reality. In the opening poem, he declares, I am the son of fathers who are purified spirits and mothers who are elemental souls. Our appearance is between spirit and body from the union of embracing and pleasures. I am not from one so that I designate him one, but I am from the union of fathers and mothers. They belong to Allah, if you verify the matter, who is like a designer who designs things with tools. So here, Ibn Arabi is making it clear that he is talking at the level of what we call secondary causes, at the level of which things emerge one after another in an orderly manner, not at the level of the ahadiyya, the singularity or uniqueness, 
by which aspect everything is tied to the one reality directly through what he calls the private face. We are in the realms of cause and effect of the universe, which within medieval cosmology was conceived of as a great chain of being in which everything from the highest to lowest was linked together in a continuous network of action and reception. Ibn Arabi goes on. Know that the intended goal of the universe is the realized human being, Al-Insan, who is the Imam. Therefore, we connect the mothers and fathers to that reality. We say the high fathers and the low mothers, for every affector or cause is a father, and every affected upon is a mother. What is born between them is called a child or an engendered thing. What is meant at the level of knowledge, that these are two primary principles that join one to the other in a single unit, which is common to them both. The connecting link is what we call marriage, and the outcome which issues from them, the child, is the desired result. The spirits, all of them, are fathers, and nature is the mother, as she is the locus or place of transformations. The spirits turn to face the base elements, which are the constituents receptive to change and transformation, so that progeny can appear in them. Ibn Arabi goes on to trace this generative process throughout the chapter, through every cosmological degree, starting at the pre-manifest level of the existential command kun, or be, issued to the possibilities in his presence of knowledge. Then, in order to descent to the level of the first intellect, to the pen which writes the destinies of all things upon the tablet, to the creation of the celestial spheres, then the level of the four elements of earth, fire, air and water, and finally to the physical beings in the manifest world, culminating in the embodied human being. It is a vision of extraordinary beauty and harmony, love and unity, because, of course, the metaphor of fathers and mothers producing children is intrinsically one in which love and desire, intimacy and pleasure play a central role. So it is a vision which brims with life and a sense of creativity. And there are many things which can be said about it, but for our purposes, I want to draw out just two points. Firstly, the specific nature of the arrangement he describes. Ibn Arabic makes it clear that these two opposing aspects of reality, which would not necessarily have any relationship with each other, come together in marriage for a particular purpose, which is the production of a child. They are united, or rather act as one, in this specific situation for the sake of this intended outcome. It is not at all a mechanical or inevitable process. Secondly, it is a vision in which, despite the different designations of height and lowliness, in which the genders have an equal role in the generation of the progeny. In fact, the whole edifice relies upon the two sides being in perfect harmony with each other. As Ibn Barabi points out early in the chapter, giving a mundane example of a, cre of a creative command, quote, a speaker when he wants someone to stand up, says, stand up. 
the intended result comes about with the standing up, which happens as an effect of saying stand up. But if the hearer does not stand up, and he is a mother without a doubt, he is barren. And if he is barren, then he is not really a mother in this situation. In other words, the possibility exists that the arrangement will not be perfectly enacted and therefore that the intended fruit of the union is not produced. And if this happens, then the fault must be attributed to the side of the mother, the receiver, who in this particular case is the hearer of the command, not to the father, because it is intrinsic to the idea of the spirit or the father that is pure. As Ibn Arabi says in the first line of the poem, I am the child of fathers who are purified spirit. So the possibility of change or imperfection must necessarily come from the elemental side. Unfortunately, for cosmic continuance, we are told by the tradition that perfect reception, perfect obedience to the command of the spirit is the normal rule in the universe. It is in the very nature of things to comply. The only exception is the human being who is given free will such that they have a possibility of disobeying certain kinds of orders. To use Ibn Arabi's example of not standing up when commanded to. Therefore, human beings uniquely, if they wish to fulfill their cosmic purpose, have to consciously and willingly achieve the kind of receptivity to the divine command, which is the natural state of all other created beings. And it is here that the concept of being a man or manliness, Rejulia, comes in. It stems from the ancient tradition, not at all exclusive to Islam, but formulated in a particular way within it, that in order to achieve spiritualization or completion, we have to rein in those elements within us which lead us to disobey or to be out of harmony with the cosmic order as we have just described it. And these elements are seen as the passions of desires of what is often called the lower self, the nafs, which is feminine in Arabic, both in notion and in grammar. And that which does the reigning in is the spirit or the intellect, akal, which are both notionally and grammatically masculine. So, for example, in the Greek philosophical tradition, our rational faculty, which is equated with the spirit, is seen as our pathway to union with the celestial realms. And the journey to perfection is a process by which the seeker gains mastery of their lower self so that it does not interfere with this ascension. And this was done through cultivating the virtues and restraining the passions. And in the Sufi tradition, particularly in the early days, the path was conceived of in a very similar way, in which the lower self or nafs um, was trained and educated through ascetic practices and the cultivation of the divine qualities until it became obedient and compliant to the divine will, until it comes into a state of submission or Islam. At this stage, it does not interfere with the creative process, which Ibn Arabi so graphically describes in chapter 11. And the person is then able to become a fruitful locus of manifestation for the divine action. And the person who succeeds in this kind of mastery of the self is considered to achieve the state of manliness or rejulia. 
because of the correlation of the active qualities of spirit with the masculine principle and the imperfect tendencies of the lower self with the feminine. In this sense, the appellation Rijal Allah, men of God, becomes virtually synonymous with friend of God or saint. And another related meaning of Rijulia is spiritual virility, which is the ability to undertake effective spiritual action. And the meaning of this metaphor is made very clear in the context of Ibn Arabi's explanation in chapter 11. It indicates that the person has become a place where the action of the spirit falls on fertile, not barren ground, and so progeny can be produced. And it is in this context, I suggest, that we need to understand Atta's, Atta's remark about Rabia. When a woman becomes a man in the path of God, is she is a man and one cannot anymore call her a woman. What is being said here is that she reached a degree of mastery of the self and is thus able to manifest the active divine qualities. And one of the most important of these in the early tradition was the ability to recite and make commentary upon the Quran, for which both Rabia and Fatima were famous. And as such, they were able to teach and instruct others. And this included men as well as women, because as spiritual men, they could, when the situation called for it, take a superior position who were in their outward form masculine, but inwardly in a less realized state. And this transposition of the terms male and female to interior qualities is implicitly embraced by Ibn Arabi in chapter 174 of the Futahat, where he briefly discusses the matter of Rujulia. He defines it in a very classical manner as a state where the human being is cleansed by leaving the darkness of nature and passion for the light of intellect and guidance. But almost immediately, he goes on to qualify the statement to say that this is the case whether the person is male or female. In other passages, which recent work by people like Suad Hakim and Saadi Sheikh have made well known, he argues that women are capable of taking on all the active functions in the spiritual hierarchy as it has conceived within Islam. This is a well-known passage, but it's well worth quoting here. He says, both men and women participate in all the levels, even in being the axial saint. In tradition, if we receive nothing concerning this matter except the saying of the prophet that women are the same as men in heritage, it would be enough. In other words, everything that a man can attain, spiritual stations, levels or qualities, can be attained by women if God wills, just as they can be attained by man if God wills. The only exception he appears to make is the degree of law-giving prophecy, but even this has been debated within scholarship in regard to what he says about the status of Mary, and this is something I'm not going to go into. Now we're going to move on to manifestation of Rujulia in real women in Ibn Arabi's life. So Ibn Arabi underlines this commitment to the idea of gender transcendence in the descriptions he gives of the physical women in he met in his life. 
from the last symposium I talk I gave for the society, which I think was three years ago, was on the long work of his middle period, The Holy Spirit in the Counseling of the Soul, the Ruel Quds, which, as the title indicates, takes the form of a classic exposition of the education of the soul by the spirit. I say in the form of because it is essentially quite innovative it's an, in its understanding of the soul. But the basic idea of education is as I have just explained it. And in the long section, third section of this work, he gives examples of people who influenced him during his early life. And amongst these, unusually for a time, he mentions four women. Two of them are clearly important features to him. In his descriptions of them, he goes out of his way, at least it seems so to me, to emphasize their spiritual strength and steadfastness and their attainments rather than the more traditionally female attributes of submissive and obedience. And he employs many superlatives, as seems to be the habit when referring to female saints. Of Shams Omar Fakara, for instance, he says, I have never seen anyone of our kind like her with respect to the control she had over her own soul. In her spiritual activities and communications, she was amongst the greater, greatest. And of Zainab al-Khalila, she was not only the foremost ascetic of her day, but also one of the most intelligent people of her time, who had kept company with some of the most eminent Sufi masters in the Meccan region. Most remarkable of Ibn Arabi's female teachers was Fatima bin Muthana, an old woman who lived rough on the streets of Seville, whom he maintains was given the ability not so much as to recite or comment on the first surah of the Quran, the Fatiha, but to wield its power to effect miracles. Similarly, when Ibn Arabi describes the qualities of the beautiful young girl, Nizam, that he met in midlife in Mecca, who inspired his famous cycle of mystical love poems, the, the Interpreter of Desires, he does not limit himself to extolling her purity and piety. Here again, he emphasizes her knowledge and her active abilities in learning and her eloquence, a much prized ability in the Islamic culture. He says, if she talked at length, she could outstay anyone. If she spoke concisely, she did it in inimitable style. And if she spoke eloquently, she was lucid. Lucid. If she declaimed, Kusal Sada would fall silent. Kusal Sada being a legendary figure of Arabic antiquity, who was famous for his power of speech. And he calls Nizam the shaker of the two sanctuaries, meaning Mecca and Medina, the two most holy places in the Islamic world which is no small accolade. We don't have a handy guide like Ru'al Quds to the women in Ibn Arabi's later life when he was writing and teaching in the great cities of the Islamic heartlands, but we can get some information from the study of the extensive body of manuscripts and writings that he left behind. This research is in its early stages, I suspect, but we already know that he took women as disciples, for he devotes 33 poems in his Diwan to them, understanding their, their, their virtues in, um, in, a, in an effusive style. In addition, 
we know that there were at least three women to whom he gave specific transmission to trans- permission to transmit his works. His wife, Maryam bint Muhammad ibn Abdun, who was given permission to transmit his diwan. Zainab Unalchaya, who was given an ijazah for Milwaukee and the Zoom at a long, young age and went on, it seems, to be a famous transmitter of his work. And the most striking case, a woman called Umm al-Dilal, who in five notes on the autograph footer hat is given specific permission to transmit the whole of this amazingly comprehensive and elevated work. In fact, as far as we know, she is the only person to whom an ajaza for the whole work is explicitly given. Although I think we would assume that Sadruddin Akhanavi was also granted such an honour. That women were, were recognised as having these qualities and given these roles was not actually exceptional. Research over the past 20 years has revealed that women were in fact highly educated and active participants in both Sufi and intellectual circles during their classical period. But their contribution has been hidden because of the custom of not mentioning them in writings intended for public dissemination. Camille Helminski, for instance, has documented some really important women within the Mevlevi tradition of the period, including two direct disciples of Jalaluddin Rumi, Bakrunissa and Tavan Khatan, who have both surviving and much visited tombs in Konya, and his two granddaughters through Sultan Velad, Mohara Khatan and Sheriff Khatan, who are described as women of great spiritual depth who had multiple disciples throughout Asia Minor. Similarly, a study of the monarchy of Abib Arabi's great friend in Anatolia, the Sufi master and poet Ahaduddin al-Kamani, reveals that he too had a female heir, his daughter Amina Khatan, who became the shaker of 17 Hanukkahs in Damascus and was known as Sit al-Ulama, the Lady of Scholars, because of her great learning. And so there's much more that can be said about all this, and it's a very burgeoning area of research. But for now, onward onto our next section. Oh, this is the, um, forgotten to do this. This is the, the Samar, which was given to Umm Dalal at the end of the second volume of the footer hat, giving her permission, as it says, to, um, to, um, to transmit all 37 volumes of the work. Onward. So the perfection of servanthood. However, important of the concept of Rajulia is, Ibn Arabi gives precedence to that which is ontologically prior to it, which is the receptivity of the mother. In chapter 174 of the Futter Hat, he introduces the idea that there are two types of perfection which are manifest within the insan al Carmel. The perfection of Rujulia, which is the perfection of spiritual activity, and the perfection of servanthood, Ubudia, which is the perfection of receptivity, which he calls the essential perfection. He says, the essential perfection, which is different from the perfection of manliness, is that of that the servanthood of the person is not contaminated by lordship in any way 
so that they become existent in the essence of non-existence and established in the essence of negation. It is for this that the real created them. The perfection of Rajulia is accidental or contingent, whilst the perfection of Ubudia is essential. So ranking according to excellence occurs within the accidental perfection, but not within the essential perfection. God says we have ranked some messengers above others in excellence, etc. So here, Ibn Arabi is invoking the classical Aristotelian contrast between substance, which is essential and unchanging, and accident, which is dependent and contingent and subject to change. And we know that when in the Quran, he uses the first person, the first person plural we is used, then the speech is from the level of the divine names. So what Ibn Arabi is saying here is that according to the perfection of Rajulia, the saints vary in the divine qualities that they manifest, and they have different degrees. Some of them are more knowledgeable than others. Some of them have greater powers. Some are expansive and some are in constriction. And this is also made very clear in Ibn Arabi's own descriptions of his teachers and companions in works like Ru'al Quds and Futuhat. He also mentions that certain spiritual functions can be both given and taken away. For instance, he mentions someone who had been demoted from the ranks of the Abdal or the substitutes and was in a state of great grief as a result. However, in their essential perfection, all realized people are the same. And it is the state that we all return to as it is our essential reality. Going back to chapter 11, Ibn Arabi explains there just how essential this aspect of abudia and receptivity is, referring to the Quranic tradition about the divine command B, which brings all things into existence, he says. The first high father is a known at the level of God's knowledge of himself. And the first of the low mothers is the thingness of the non-existent possibility. The first marriage is seeking the order kun to be. And the first child is the existence of the essence or particularization of this thingness which we have already mentioned. This first father flows through all fatherhood, and this first mother flows through all motherhood. And similarly, this marriage flows through everything, and the outcome endures. It is not cut off in regard, in regard to each appearance of the essential particularization. This is called by us the marriage which flows through all the progeny. In other words, this receptivity to the command B precedes even our existence as individual consciousnesses, and it subsists at every level of manifestation at its essential, as its essential reality. There is no degree in the universe which it does not permeate. As Eric so neatly put it this morning, Mother Earth exists both inside, outside, and within the known universe. At this degree of existential command, 
it is not actually possible for a creative thing to be disobedient. For if it was, it would not be at all. This means that everything in creation, by the necessity of their very existence, is a servant of God and acts in conformity to his will. And this includes even the most unaware or rebellious human beings, as their disobedience does not, on the whole, mean that they cease to exist. By virtue of their primordial receptivity, at an unconscious level, they endure. Ibn Arabi often uses the word abud rather than abudia to denote this necessary servanthood of every created being. What he means by abudia, therefore, is the active conformity to those divine commands to which we are given the option of agreeing or disagreeing. And technically, they're called taklifi commands, such as the demands of religion. Or, in a more mystical sense, it means coming to a state of awareness and willing acceptance of the already existing fact that we are totally dependent upon the real for our very existence. In its most advanced form, this entails us consciously identifying with the state of the first mother, which is that of non-existent possibility. And this is a state of lowliness and, re and, and, and receptivity. It's a state of knowing ourselves as acted upon rather than being actors. And this is why God says to Abba Yuzid in the conversation I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, that we can only draw near to him with that which does not belong to him, civility and dependence. In other words, by cultivating the qualities of the mothers, not the fathers. Thus, in the poem introducing the very last chapter of the Futahat, chapter 560, Ibn Arabi declares something which has sometimes been regarded as quite perplexing, but the context in our exposition should now seem quite straightforward. He says, we are all female because of what is engendered in us. In reality, there is not in creation a man. Men who know their own essences know that they are really female. In other words, the highest state of knowledge is to affirm that the only active creative force in the universe is from the side of the spirit, from God, who is, as it says in the first opening lines of the Quran, the Lord of the universes, Rabbul Alameen. As we saw in the first passage I quoted on the essential perfection, Ibn Arabi says of the person who has realized this degree that they are not contaminated by lordship in any way. So, just one more point before I finish about the nature of Abudia as Ibn, Ibn Arabi presents it. So it's probably not escaped your notice how similar the vision of creation Ibn Arabi gives us in chapter 11 is to the biblical and Quranic narratives of the birth of Jesus, whom Ibn Arabi tells us is the symbol of creation. And as you all no doubt know, this birth happens not in the usual manner by a physical father and mother coming together in union, but through the direct intervention of the divine spirit 
in the form of the angel Gabriel blowing into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And Mary, within the Islamic tradition, is seen as the exemplar of perfect receptivity. She is the perfect mother in the sense of chapter 11. And Ibn Arabi explicitly associates her symbolically with universal nature. And in doing so, he makes clear that he regards the Annunciation as a reenactment of the primal, primordial act of creation as we have been discussing it. But what he also makes clear is that Mary's receptivity is not just a state of passive acceptance. She is not just an undifferentiated ground upon which the spirit acts. As Ibn Arabi explains in the chapter of Jesus in the Vasus al-Hikam, or the Reason and Wisdom, when the faithful spirit, who is Gabriel, appeared to Mary, peace beyond them both, in the form of a well-proportioned man, she imagined that he was a mortal man who wanted to have sexual intercourse with her. Therefore, she took refuge with him, in him, with all of herself, so that God could save her from him, since she knew that that was forbidden. She attained complete presence with God, which is the abstract spirit. If Gabriel had blown into her then, when she was in this state, Jesus would have emerged such that no one could have borne him on account of the sullenness of his nature due to his mother's state. But when Gabriel said to her, I am a messenger from, from your Lord, come to give you a poor, pure son, she expanded from that state of contraction and she rejoiced. At that moment, he blew Jesus into her, unquote. And my thanks to Cecilia Twinch for her translation of this passage. On the matter of Mary rejoicing, she adds a footnote explaining that the text says literally her chest relaxed or her heart opened so that she was in a state of delight and joy. So what Mary exhibits here is that for the intended outcome to occur, which in this case was the coming into being of Jesus, who would be a prophet inviting, to, inviting people to the truth, for which he had to be a person who was not so solemn that no one would go near him. The mother has to be in what one might call an active state of receptivity, responding willingly and happily to the action of the spirit. She doesn't have to, she is not in a state of coercion. And as we already saw in chapter 11, the coming together of the mothers and fathers is an act of love in which there is pleasure and satisfaction. And this is because, as Eric explained so well in his presentation this morning, it has its origin in the desire of the one reality that his or her beauty should be expressed and known. According to the Hadith Qudsi, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known, so I created the world that I might be known. And this principle is even more essential than the command be, and consequently it too permeates every creative act in the universe. Therefore, the part of the servant is not just to passively accept the divine action, but to actively agree to it and welcome it out of love. 
in passages which we will have to leave here because of the time. Ibn Arabi talks about this process in more detail, drawing out the specific nature of each encounter between a father and a mother. The heart of the insan al-Kamil, he tells us, not only opens, but changes its form in order to conform to the nature of the incoming revelation and thus makes itself into a suitable receptacle for it, depicting a kind of cosmic dance in which the two sides are constantly adapting themselves one to the other. But given time, we have to leave that to later. And so onwards. Ah, and this, I've put this here. This was um, Ralph's favourite picture of the Annunciation because the fact that Mary is not just sitting there, but she is actively leaning forward. And you can see that the, the, the two sides are, are equally coming together and eager to meet. So finally, bringing the two perfections together. So to end, I want to bring us back to the main theme of this talk, which is activity and receptivity. So Ibn Arabi does not suggest that the two modes of Abudia and Rajulia are opposed to each other in any kind of essential way. He talks about them as two different modes of perfection. And it is clear from the way that he presents the real life saints that he met, that they exhibited qualities both of devotion and servanthood and of spiritual activity and effectiveness. As Eric said, the most perfect perfection is when both the female and the male sides are both fully realized. In fact, one could say that the latter springs quite naturally from the former, in that the perfect servant is one who is willing and pleased to do whatever God asks of them, including taking on active roles such as teaching and instructing others and accepting positions within the spiritual hierarchy. However, it is possible for them to have a preference. So I want to end with a short prayer of Ibn Arabis from, the, from chapter 174. He says, May God bring about in us the joining together of these two perfections of Rujulia and Abudia. But if he forbids this to us, may he through his generosity and kindness place us amongst the people of Ubudia. Thank you.